0: Thank you, Isaac. Hello, brothers and sisters. It is awesome to be back with you this morning. As Isaac said, I'm Tower Kuntz, and I'm one of the pastors in our presbytery. But I'm working at a Baptist church, a historic Black Baptist church in North Omaha, at 30th and Coming in Omaha, called St. Matthew Baptist, where my partner in ministry, T. Barlow, just on April 1st was installed as the new pastor of the 60-year-old church. Um, so we're uh, I'm grateful to them for loaning me to you guys uh, for this service here, and I brought with me, and I've been excited to bring her uh, to to Grace Chapel. I've been talking about a lot. My fiance, Lindley Corbett, is here. (laughs) We just got engaged a week and a half ago, and I uh, she's heard me talk ad nauseum about Grace Chapel. It is so nice um, to be here with you this morning. I know you guys are down a pastor. I know you guys are down to one service because it's summertime right now, and um, and uh, you may just feel like you're chugging along. I don't know, but I want you to know that for somebody coming in from the outside who hasn't been here in a while, it is a really worshipful environment. Um, you guys are ministering to one another really beautifully. And that last song we just sang was gorgeous, um, and I'm glad we're going I think we're going to hear from it again in a little bit. As Isaac also... Um, mentioned or alluded to, Uh, I'm not preaching on Acts 5, actually, it's going to be Psalm 73. It turns out, though, the theme of the children's sermon uh, applies very much to this. We're going to be talking in Psalm 73 and looking for this idea, maybe it's happened to you before, have you ever uh, had somebody pray for you or you've prayed for somebody else, Uh, Lord, just be with them, you've heard somebody else praying that and maybe scoffed at it and thought it wasn't that much of a prayer. What we're going to talk about, what, what that Acts 5 chapter talks about, and what, what Psalm 73 are going to talk about here, is the value, the critical value of the presence of the Lord. We're going to turn there in just a moment. But as we turn there, remember that the Psalms are God's songbook, his prayer book for his people, and so it's where he tells his people how we're supposed to approach him and how we're supposed to worship him. And it doesn't pull any punches. There are psalms all over the place um, where a psalmist basically has to talk himself off the ledge or the Holy Spirit helps talk him off the ledge over the course of it. As we read this psalm, Psalm 73, and I'm going to read it from the New International Version. As we read it, consider that although this was written about 3,000 years ago, it could have been written today. That question that the brothers in the book of Acts, the apostles would have had in the book of Acts... Would have been, is this really worth it? Does God really have me? And especially as they look around at others and consider their own suffering, they wonder whether this is worth it. That same, same feeling we can have in our lives today, and also the psalmist, a thousand years before that, can have it. Asaph, who wrote this psalm, says this Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. And with arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven... And their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. And have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then... I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever asked the question of yourself, really, not just theoretically, um, but really when when you're going through something difficult or you see something difficult or just seemingly absurd, how can a good God allow a world like this to persist, to continue with all of its struggle, this beautiful and deeply broken world? We all know the phrase, or many of us know the phrase, God is good, and some of us know the response all the time. And all the time, God is good. But sometimes our experience, our day-to-day life, can call that into question. His fatherliness, his faithfulness to us, his care for us, even his power, whether he can do anything about it. Other forces can seem like they're in command, All we have to do is turn on cable news, turn on YouTube, pick up a newspaper if you still have a print version, observe what our neighbors treasure and the other things around us. This psalmist Asaph sees this conflict in here. It's right here in verse one. He's saying, surely God is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. And yet, and yet, I nearly lost my foothold when I started looking at how good life others around me live who don't know you. Others have all the enjoyments and we get all the trouble. In verse 4 he says they have no struggles. (laughs) They're healthy and they have strong bodies. And in verse 14 in comparison to that he says all day long I have been afflicted. They lead trouble-free lives. Verse 5 free from human burdens, not plagued by human ills. And so as a result, they can live their lives or they live their lives from the center that they are the center of their own lives. The God at the center of their lives is themselves. And so in verse six, pride is their necklace, Listen again how much this sounds like our society today. This is 3,000 years ago, but he's describing consumers, people who are scraping things off the surface of the earth and just bringing them to themselves, endlessly feeding themselves, taking advantage of others, even exploiting them, clothing themselves, in verse 6, with violence. Think of the way that people speak to one another when they're commentators on TV, for example. Scoffers, arrogant. Think about the way people treat each other less politely in society even today they puff themselves up they threaten they're arrogant they use their tongues to do evil because the thoughts in their hearts are evil they imagine ways to succeed and to prosper even through that evil and with their tongues in verses eight and nine they rule it says so they intimidate they put other people down with their tongues They're not operating on God's economy because they think that they're smarter than that. Our society today, many, many in our society, and our society as a whole can view religion generally, Christianity specifically, as a quaint idea that we threw out with the Enlightenment that no thinking person believes anymore. We're smarter than that. So these people are living this way. And what is the result? In verse 4, they're doing well. Life is for today and it seems like it's going to go on forever. They're carefree. In verse 12 it says that they it essentially says that they get wealthier, they're carefree, and they seem to prosper in the wickedness. What do other people think of them? In verse 10 it says that they're admired by other people, that they're popular, that people worship their power. We see this today, don't we, brothers and sisters? Power like Rome emerges generation after generation and wants our our claims for our fidelity, for our allegiance, and our idolatry to look to something besides Jesus, whether it be a political party, whether it be uh, one particular tradition, whether it be our own intellect, but something that we would subscribe to rather than the Lord to look to for our security and our power. Lots of people every generation are bowing, and think of how we do this in our generations, bowing before an idol, before a strong man, and even Christians can do this, who profess that we know the creator and sustainer of the universe and and our redeemer, the one thing that we need in the world, can look to other things, other things, and say, those might be better. Followers who are following others here in this passage in Psalm 73 are even letting this following start to compromise their own principles. You can see it in verse 11. Look at what it starts doing to them in verse 11. They say, they start to say to themselves, how could God know? Does the Most High know anything? So as we can get proximity to power, that we think we're going to have in other places, other idols that aren't the Lord, that we can look to for some of those things that we want in our lives. We can get drunk on it. And we can let it get between us and God as we have the illusion that that is going to be a long-term sustainer. When there's only one long-term sustainer in the world, that's the Lord. Again and again in human history, in every generation, we see this worship of power, worship of the strong, somebody who says they're going to give us something or do something for us. That was the power of what Satan told Jesus he could have. Imagine, Satan told Jesus that he could be in charge of every city in the world. Those would have been amazing cities, well run, and (laughs) a lot of good things would have happened. But that power coming from somewhere other than the Lord was ephemeral. It was something that that was a wisp that wasn't real. This other way of living is the opposite of God's economy, but we see the power of it. We see the effectiveness. We see people living well seemingly by it. And so we, just like Asaph, can ask that question, is godliness worthwhile or is this a waste of time? Is this a nice, quaint, convenient thing to add to our lives, maybe however we want to, or is it something to live under and live by what the Lord's given us? He puts it like this Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure It's not going as well for me As it is for these other people Who aren't aren't following you Lord You see what's happening to him His temptation is To begin to desire What the other people around him desire It's so easy to go with the flock To get on the bandwagon He's thinking life is short I think that the, the Lord is real But what if this is the only life I have Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. What if we're we're missing out on the life, the full life that we, we would think we could have? In vain, I've kept my heart pure. Heart here, the word heart is used six times in Psalm 73. It seems to be the center of what's going on here. Now we'll talk about thinking, and we'll get there in a minute, but the heart is represented again and again in Hebrew as The center, like the guts and the heart are both presented as the center of the person, not just the thing providing the blood flow, but it's the state of the center of our being, the center of our Christian life. It's where our longings reside, and it's where idols or worship of the true God will be seated in our hearts. Ultimately, our inner longings, our deepest desires tell us that, tell us what we love. And as James K.A. Smith, the author, says, as the title of his wonderful book, You Are What You Love, Ultimately. I think of what Brian Chappell uh, told us about preaching, or I'm sorry, about sinning. He said, Why do you sin? You sin because you love it. Your problem isn't the individual sins you commit, but that your heart longs for some of these things, even though it's, you're never going to get what you want from those, those sources. You know, what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, is serious. That we're praying for his kingdom and his economy to come and replace the economy that we have here that we don't have attachments to. Instead, we have attachment to the Lord's economy. And coming to church as we hear one another, as we sing these songs, as we hear God's word preached, as we pray together, as we confess our sins, as the Lord sends us out, as we do the announcements for church, everything that we do here is stuff that is calibrating our hearts away from those earthly things and toward the Lord. That is the one thing that's going to give us that. Another quote that applies here is G.K. Chesterton's quote. It's a little bit racy, but it said, he said 100, 110 years ago or so, he said, every man who enters a brothel is searching for God. That every place we think we're going to get something in our lives that isn't the Lord. What we're actually longing for and reaching toward, ultimately, whether we know it or not, is toward the Lord. And so to find that connection, to connect that to the thing it's supposed to be, is what's going on here in this psalm as he works through this with the Holy Spirit and as we think about how it applies to ourselves as well. It's why we come to church. Think of songs generally, not just songs in church, but songs that do something for you. Something in your heart, whether it makes you want to dance, or makes you cry, or evokes a memory or a connection to somebody, that there is power in art and music to do those things, to affect our desires. Those desires are critical. So I ask you this question: What do you strive for most in your life? What do you long for? What do you find yourself longing for? I recently found, found myself just lusting, I know this sounds really lame and benign, but I was lusting after a piece of garden equipment that I really, really wanted to get, and shortly after that, the Lord hurt my back, or allowed my back to get hurt, um, so I couldn't use it. But I was just like, I must have this, and I ended up not getting it. We got two other pieces of garden equipment, but not this. And uh, I didn't really, really, really need it, but I found myself also thinking, uh, starting to catch myself, real, thinking about all the things I would do with it and how happy we would be for this piece of plastic. Um, and we don't need that to be happy ultimately. I think our longings can find attachment to all kinds of things that are not going to give us what they think they're going to, we think they're going to. And the whole advertising industry today, much of it is built around creating these longings for us. So we have people who are working to do that. and We, we can do it ourselves even without any help. So this psalmist is in turmoil. He says he's got self-doubt, that he's got envy. But where does he take his struggle? That's the next question I want to think about. First of all, what do you long for? But then secondly, when you are struggling with something, when you're longing for something, where do you take that struggle when it happens? Do you despair, retreat into yourself and complain? I'm sorry, do you despair and uh, go I, I become an extrovert and complain about it to other people? Sorry, it's the opposite. Many of us do this. I found myself doing this in the past. You can find a connection with somebody by complaining about something else. But he notices this in verse 15. He thinks, he recognizes that he's part of a community, he's part of a fellowship. And he says, If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. He's realizing it's okay to talk about stuff with somebody else, but what's not okay is just to fester and fester and fester and, and think that that's going to get something done. And so he realizes, That's not, that's a starter. That's not going to get me anywhere. I, I really want to understand what's going on with it seems like everybody else in the world is leading a better life than I am and I'm following the Lord. Complaining about that isn't going to get anywhere. So he thinks that first. He remembers he's part of a community. And that is the thread that as he keeps pulling it, ends up getting somewhere really, really, really helpful as we come along with him. So he thinks first, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to betray the, or hurt the community. So maybe I should just retreat inside myself and figure it out. That's what I alluded to first. Well, look what he says in verse 16. You'd think, you know, uh, that's a great idea. It's, it's an intellectual guy that wants to kind of figure it out and piece it out together. And I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I can tend to do this all the time, where I think if I can just break something down and really, you know, analyze it, put it on the table figuratively, then then I'll have it all figured out. Then I'll be good. I'll know the parameters, and I'll, I'll be just fine with it. But look what he says in verse 16. He says, when I tried to understand all this, what's the result? <laughs> It troubled me deeply. He didn't get anywhere just trying to figure it out. This is a, like a real problem. He's got serious problems. There's smaller problems we can figure out, but the real questions, the things that compete for our hearts, for idolatry, that would take our hearts away from the Lord or attach them to him, the real questions we have in life are questions that we can't figure out on our own. For him, it just troubles him deeply. So should he maybe ignore it and avoid it? <laughs> No, that's the answer for somebody who doesn't believe in the Lord. If there's no God out there, then I wouldn't challenge somebody to to dig below the surface too hard because it's an abyss. And so many people, whether they are conscious of it or not conscious of it, if they don't know the Lord, need to not think about certain things to get through life. And so that would be what he would probably have to do if he didn't know the Lord, but he's stuck here. Knowing the God of the universe, and it's saying this doesn't seem like it adds up, so what can I do? And there's a decisive moment where he's, he's thought about despairing and complaining to everybody and says, that's not going to work. He's thought about, can I just figure this out in my own head, uh, and, and found that wanting. Um, realizes he can't ignore it. And in verse 17, he says, this troubled me deeply. Deeply. Until, this is the center of the whole psalm, this middle of verse 17. It troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. This is not an intellectual exercise. He doesn't deduce something or invent something in his head, he doesn't engage in speculation. He encounters something in worship what's he talking about there? Is that that he, you know, he walks in 16th and A to the Grace Chapel building and this room is magical when he walks in here and everything changes because he's in the sanctuary? No, he's talking about what a sanctuary is. What are we doing here on Sunday morning? One of the many things we're doing is, is connecting with the Lord of the universe and with one another. That one of the things that happened when we rebelled in the Garden of Eden against the Lord is we were alienated from him, from ourselves. And then thirdly, we were alienated from other people. And so on Sundays, we are reconnecting that, those, those two attachments. And, he's realized, and, and the sanctuary that he comes into is the sanctuary where he's got the presence of others and more than anything, he has God's presence with him, which is everything. That prayer I mentioned in the beginning, oh, or, or just that wishful thing, uh, or, or the prayer, Lord, just be with them. Is actually one of the most profound and fantastic prayers that you could pray for somebody. That's what he realizes here and what we're realizing as we go through this together. It's, what, it's the pattern that Isaiah had and his call in Isaiah 6. You to remember when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 says he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. This is when he first becomes a prophet. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He walks into that sanctuary. Just like Asaph walks into that sanctuary where God's presence is. God's presence is everything. Isaiah goes through a whole thing where he realizes he's a sinner, and next to God, who is perfect, that's he's scared. And then he and then God forgives him. Essentially, he puts the coal to his lips and gives him a mission. And sends him out. All of that, all of that involves Isaiah coming into God's presence, and the whole rest of his life is based on that. And for uh, Asaph as well. Even though he doesn 't get the answer he 's looking for, do you notice that he never actually gets a nice on a tight and tight little bow answer to the issue of other people, but he gets something much much, much deeper. He does get that question answered, but at a much much deeper level than just an intellectual answer for it, even though he doesn 't get the answer he was demanding when he enters the sanctuary, he receives god 's peace this is The peace that's described in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He does not get an intellectual answer, but instead he gets the peace of God's presence. So brothers and sisters, where he took his struggle is key. It's where we want to be taking our struggle, to the Lord. The Lord can take it. If you want to beat on his chest, if you want to complain to him, I would even say, uh, you may want to ask Isaac about this to confirm, uh, but I would say if you need to to use foul language with him and privately uh, alone, do whatever you need to do to bring your true self to the Lord. Remember what Luther told Philip Melanchthon, when Melanchthon was wrestling with sins, he said, I've got some real sin problems, and Luther said, my dear Philip, Jesus provides real grace for real sin, so we can bring our real struggle to the Lord. And that will help us address this third issue, which is, I want to ask the question, where is your security? You can see Asaph here experiences God's peace, and that's exactly if you haven't noticed, exactly what he had been thinking that the wicked had, remember? He's thinking they've got shalom, they've got peace. But this same word shalom is what God gives me, gives Asaph, he says, when he enters God's presence, God's sanctuary, when he takes it to God. And he rediscovers here something as we move on in verse 18 and beyond, that God, first of all, that God is just. That the universe does make sense because of the personality that makes sense at the center of it. He has not, in verses 18 and 19, allowed Asaph to fall. But the wicked are doomed to fall. It's something that surprises them. They're not expecting it. It doesn't fit into their economy. It's not something that they're anticipating. It says in verse 20, they're like a dream. A dream is really vivid when it's happening. But when you wake up, sometimes the only way out is to wake up of <laughs> a messed up dream, and you're like, oh goodness, I'm so glad <laughs> that was only a dream. But when you wake up, the dream's gone. And it says here that it's like a wisp, a phantom, a dream, no substance, that they're like fantasies. And it's God's presence that brings this realization. I, Asaph, have peace, and this seeming security that they have is actually uh, ephemeral. It's not not something that's permanent. God's judgment of the wicked puts this all into perspective. And if we stopped there, there would be a nice story about how things add up and how God is just. But it would not be good news for Asaph. And it would not be good news for you and me. (laughs) Why is this? Because what about Asaph? Asaph. He's been railing about all these wicked, all the, those people out there. I'm in church bringing something to you, God, and those people out there are the bad ones. What about him? Has he kept his heart pure? He said he kept his heart pure. Has he? In verses 2 and 3, he's full of self pity. He's questioning God's justice in verse 3. He's filled with resentment. He's bitter. He's, he's got lots of envy. He even says about himself I was like a brute beast before you, I was senseless. He had a heart that was seduced away from God. And this is where this becomes good news, though, for Asaph and for you and for me, and why this is a psalm about the Lord who redeems us, not an angry God, but a Lord who reaches out to us. That God is not only just, he's also gracious to his children. Asaph has not kept his heart pure. Asaph needs this as much as anybody else does that's just the thing romans 8 28 says that god will use everything for the good of his children even things that come up in our lives even things that we can't see happening he will use for good even especially bad things he doesn't call them good but he uses them for good and underneath us always underneath Asaph, underneath you and me are his everlasting arms he says those who don't know the lord don't have that Asaph has the assurance, like you and I do, that even our sin, even our mistakes, will be transformed for the good of what the Lord is doing. That the Lord will do something epic with our lives as a result, and that we won't understand all of how it works. Asaph has been struggling. And what's the good that comes from Asaph's struggle? He enters God's presence, he realizes his sin in verse 21 and 22. And what is his astonishment near the end? Verse 23 says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. Do you feel, can you sense the peace in that compared with the struggle through the rest of it? You guide me by your counsel. You give me wisdom. And afterward you take me into glory. Asaph is good now. And he's really good long term in a profound way. The Lord has him and is never going to let him go. He realizes that God is his treasure, that God is the answer. He sees all this and he realizes that that is a gift that the Lord is giving him even though he doesn't deserve it. God is just. He's also the justifier, the one that makes Asaph able to know him. This, brothers and sisters, is what separates Christianity from every other religion, from every other self-help idea. The gospel is that God created a good world, and we broke it. We rebelled against him. We brought sin and death into this world, and all this stuff that Asaph is struggling with and we struggle with. But that he paid this debt himself by sacrificing himself in Jesus. Why? I don't know. Not because we did anything cute, but because He deeply, deeply loves us and finds value, deep value in us, in His creatures. That trusting Jesus, not ourselves, we can have access to this life and that He's coming back to put things right. Jesus, again, this is what's different from Jesus and everything else that we talk about. Metaphysical things. Jesus doesn't say, I found an amazing treasury of knowledge to share with you. I found the path to enlightenment. I found the great number of steps you can do to apply to your life. He says, He doesn't say, I found the way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't come to point away way to the truth. He said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth. He didn't come to say, I Uh, have found the answer. He said, I am the answer. And Asaph is realizing in these verses that this is the treasure, that it's way bigger than anything that anybody else around him would have that he could envy. When he says, I am with you, he's saying, I will never take this treasure away from you. And while the wicked seem to prosper, it will be taken from them. But God sacrificed Himself to pay our debt, to give us this priceless peace in this life by His presence. You see how eternal life in the future, moving forward, gives us peace for right now, that we can slow down and trust Him. For this psalmist, this was not just a personal discovery, but it's something He's got to share. And He says at verse 29, basically, I can't keep it to myself. This, brothers and sisters, is as was alluded to in the children's time. This is how the gospel is, is shared and grows. Is a bunch of people just telling their story. We have the story of Peter and, and John in that one story in, in Acts, and they had these same questions and same struggles, yet knew that they could rely on the Lord. And the way that we know about it is they told somebody who told somebody who told somebody. And the way that you're a Christian is that somebody told you about Jesus, who had, somebody had told them about him, had told them about their story, and this is what he did for me down through the generations. This is how the gospel is shared. This entire New Testament is built on the testimony of others that have something to share that they had seen with their own eyes. And your story, if it isn't already this way, will become like this, like it is for Asaph, like it is for me, like it is for so many people in this room. That the Lord will fill your cup over with security and with blessings, and that you then will be wanting to share that with other people, whether that's just by your lifestyle or whether it's by sharing it with words. This has been the case for Asaph, learning that the the treasure is the Lord in His presence and the security that that offers. It's, it was the case for the disciples in the Book of Acts. It was the case for Martin Luther. Listen to these words that he wrote as I conclude. A mighty fortress is our God, he says. And think about Asaph and the neighbors that he was envying. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be Christ Jesus it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly power, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Brothers and sisters, God is almighty. He is in control. Therefore, what are you striving for? What do you long for? When you struggle, where do you take it? And lastly, where is your security? Do you know the living God that will never leave you and never forsake you and afterward will carry you into eternity? Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you for um, this word, Lord, that every time we hear one, a new aspect about it or every time we look at something again, Lord, the story gets better and better and better. We thank you, God, that we don't have to worry about looking deeply at anything. There is no abyss for us, Lord. There's just your everlasting arms that you always have us. Lord, would you help us as we walk forward this week to trust you, more than we trust other things. Lord, would you protect us from entanglements with idols, Lord? And would you expose in our minds and our hearts the ways that we may look to other things and not to you and help us, God, to transfer those allegiances and those desires, those longings to you, God. for We know that every good and perfect gift is from you. And we thank you, God, that you have us and will never let us go. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.